This is Grand the Arch Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene. Hi, my name is Caleb True, and welcome to the second season. On today's show, I'm so glad to have Josh Levi, who, if you are or were ever part of the noise music scene in St. Louis, you probably know him. I went to middle school with Josh, but it wasn't until high school that we both started finding the scene, both of us by way of the Centro, or Tin Ceiling. One of my fondest memories of Josh growing up was doing my high school's talent show, where I, for two years, performed a kind of heckling anti-talent act I called Carl Heinz. We made noise and chaos on stage until we were told to stop, and Josh was a co-conspirator in the first performance. I remember laughing so hard I could barely breathe. While me and Josh were never in any other performing bands together, we were at many of the same shows and were heavily involved in the Lemp Arts Center for a time. Also, it is vital to mention that Josh is one of our best seen archivists, with thousands of photos of shows and performances, old flyers, video footage, and memorabilia. We talk about that a bit. Here's Josh. I feel like I've had music around me most of my life. Definitely received a lot of influence from my dad, mm-hmm. who uh, is definitely a young dad. I believe he was 19 when I was born. Mm-hmm. So the generational gap is pretty short. And he, that would kind of put him in the new wave era. So, you know, definitely grew up with the radio, but also his influence of, you know, New Order and Depeche Mode being regularly played in my household. And then as I, you know, went through my adolescence into my teen years, he definitely was like, oh, you should check out Black Flag or Sonic Youth. He basically was like, you should play an instrument. You like music. So (laughs) here's a, you know, $40 acoustic guitar and kind of just pushed it on me. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of how I started out i guess when were you given that guitar i want to say probably maybe like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. did you go, go to mckinley i did okay. so i went to this middle school triple a bush from mm-hmm. sixth and seventh grade and then in eighth grade i went to mckinley you went there right i did yeah and i probably couldn't remember because i because you were only there for one year and i just couldn't remember if i was inventing that memory or not Right, right. So that was uh, eighth grade for me. Mm-hmm. And that was around the time that I was basically, uh, sorry to jump into it. Oh, no, it's all good. <laughs> but yeah, I was basically playing bass parts on a acoustic guitar, an acoustic guitar trying to learn songs. And my dad was like, oh, clearly you need a bass guitar. So nice. um, around that time, eighth grade, I got my first bass. Is that the iconic Josh Levi red bass? that gosh if it is iconic yes that was the that was the base mm-hmm. i think it was on sale because it was so horrendous looking <laughs> at um at the guitar center in crestwood hell yeah i definitely picked that up and learned some songs uh, i think one of the first songs my dad taught me was riot by dead kennedys mm-hmm. so that was pretty solidifying in my you know formative years that mm-hmm. um you know oh i can be okay at at this Cool. Yeah. Do you have a, what, a first band that you were in? I mean, you were around. <laughs> I was around, yeah. These, these times. So, yeah. I mean, how old are you? I am 33. You're 33. I'm 34. So mm-hmm. we aren't off at all. But no, um, that's the, And that's the same with the grades. I think you were just one ahead of me, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I, you know, in, in typical fashion, you, you start teaming up with some other people at your school who are remotely into music or remotely mm-hmm. into a type of music. And, and yeah, there were some buddies, uh, Jonathan Nadoff and oh, yeah. Robert Robert Polwer, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. who uh, I said, hey, let's play some music. And Gabe Haller and played the first band might have been like that cover band nerdcore oh yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> which yeah. might have yeah. might have played one show and i mean definitely played a show um so yeah just kind of felt it out yeah i mean all of this kind of started around the eighth grade freshman year and that's kind of how it all started for me i'd say coming into the whole st louis music scene were you in band at mckinley i was in not in band was there like choir or something like that yeah those were the two choices i did choir because i was never formally trained and uh couldn't read music so i was Mm. i was definitely kind of like well i I don't want to you know fake it (laughs) yeah so um i didn't i didn't join band in eighth grade but Later on in high school, I would join jazz band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I kind of faked my way through that too, but yeah, um, yeah, I could I could at least read a little bit of music at that point. I think you're the um, first Metroite we've had on the on the show. Yeah, there aren't oh, many. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a funny a funny thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone listening would would know that St. Louis is very much the you know where did you go to high school town. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I went to Metro High School, which was a very small but highly creative school and very supportive of the arts and individuality and just that whole that whole thing that mm-hmm. fosters um, cool things happening. So I was lucky, lucky for that. What was your first show that you went to in like in like the scene? Having you know your your whole history play out over the years of reminiscing and stuff like that i think it it truly happened kind of whirlwind mm-hmm. um i want to say freshman year mm-hmm. um so i had i had been playing some music with some high school friends and um i distinctly remember okay so there were kids at our high school mm-hmm. like Jesse Mead and your sister and anyone um, kind of involved with the tin ceiling. Yes, yes, exactly. And that was just such a huge part of coming into the music scene for me. Yes, um, they were They were a little bit older. It was your older sister. Um, and I think I was a freshman and they were juniors. Yeah. And they were involved with the tin ceiling, which was a club and theater kind of yeah uh, totally definitely a kind of diy space the tin ceiling has come up like three times as like a, a kind of foundational place where like a lot of people found their way to the scene that way but also mm-hmm. the crestwood guitar center hey <laughs> it was so you know <laughs> central to to everyone yeah no that's that's so true um <laughs> and I, I have a great appreciation for that. Yeah. I think yeah, that's the one where the where Johnny Saint from the Hellraisers uh, oh my work, gosh. works still, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Three different people have mentioned Crestwood, uh, Guitar Center. Ben Smith mentioned it, but I... But you Jim, talked to Ben Smith? Oh, hell yeah. He, yep. His uh, show is great, man. Amazing. Love that guy. Um, yeah. And, uh, he, and he also was like, 
you know, a lot of people have asked if we're talking to you because they know you would remember things better or we're also there. I mean, yeah, you're, you're like, you've come up a lot. You're, you're an important part of the scene. Um, and, uh, but Ben mentioned, so a music store, uh, probably what was Guitar Center before Guitar Center in Crestwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he used to walk there as like a kid in like, that would be like the late nineties, like just oh, wow. before us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and talk to talking to Mike, Sean and Ben kind of in just about in that order. We got like, um, that's like they're, they, they all have like five years on each other. Right. Like Sean <laughs> is about five, maybe a little bit more years older than Mike. And Mike is about five years older than Ben. So yeah. we, we really kind of in steps went back into the nineties. It was kind of cool. Wow, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I I was at a band practice, and I, were you there? It was like a ska band practice with uh, maybe like Ryan Koenig on trumpet. Maybe I think it was like <laughs> it was like Kellen Key. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was okay. So <laughs> I'm in uh, my freshman year. Um, we have your older sister and a couple of other juniors um, getting involved with the Tin Ceiling, which was prior to that, um, I believe it was called Centro Social, mm-hmm. which was a, definitely like a, a venue um, that a lot of like iconic bands played. Mm-hmm. And then once the Metro kids kind of got involved, they were telling uh, me and the group of people I was hanging out with, like, hey, check out this place we have shows and um i remember specifically playing like starting a band or a band practice and like playing these just god-awful ska songs because i think <laughs> we were like hey we'll be a ska band and this song is called Oskama bin laden <laughs> just like very that puts you exactly where <laughs> in the time frame totally. um and so I remember after that band practice, um, one of the people I was with was saying, hey, we're going to go to the Tin Ceiling. We should check it out. And that night, it was the first time that I believe Scarecrow Radio and The Conformist played together. Holy shit. And that was my first time going to the Tin Ceiling, my first time seeing either of those bands. Jesus. And just completely blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um because, you know, obviously I'd heard of, you know, punk bands and been into kind of weird music. Um, I had been discovering like Skin Graph Records and mm-hmm. just kind of weirder stuff, Melt Banana. And, but going to a DIY show with quote unquote local bands <laughs> and the first the first time you see The Conformists and Scarecrow Radio, um, yeah, it just like put this crazy electric kind of shock (laughs) into my system Mm -hmm. where i was like excited and equally terrified that particular show uh scarecrow radio was playing as scarecrow die roll where they had (laughs) homemade giant sized die with songs so the audience would roll the die and whatever song played up from their catalog they would play it um (laughs) and i I didn't know any of these songs. I'm pretty sure very few in the audience knew these songs either. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, that that era of the band was just, I mean, they've always been so wild. Yeah. But um, that particular time, it was the first time hearing all of those classic songs 
and the band's getting naked and I'm like 14 and just have no idea what's <laughs> what's happening from then on I I had to see them any chance I could get and then you know the conformist played too mm-hmm. and this was like I mean if I was 14 they were in their early 20s yes. probably so and yeah, they were from where Collinsville. Mm-hmm. So they had their little crew, but I don't think a lot of people knew knew about them or knew what they were about. It was scary. It was scary <laughs> watching the conformists because Mike is just snarling and kind of crawling on the ground and confrontational in the kind of psychological way that yeah. they they were. And you know, you didn't know what to expect, but you knew this music was like very pummeling and kind of dark and gritty and just weird so yeah um it was just awesome to kind of be introduced to the scene that way um with both of those bands on the same show yeah and uh truly nothing was the same after that no doubt yeah that's that's so true (laughs) yeah my first uh show was also there and also the conformists and i'd want to say it's scarecrow but i don't remember the dice Oh, uh, sure. So I mean, maybe another show of theirs. Were we at the same ska band practice? I, <laughs> you I, know, we might have been. I just It might have been. I, I can't remember. That was just such a, hey, I don't know what kind of music I want to be playing. I guess we'll play ska and then sing. <laughs> oh, wait, I want to play the weirdest music in the world. And I love I love it. So that was very formative. Yeah. And like, I can't think that crew of uh, Metroites enough for not only like providing a space for all ages kids to kind of check check out this weird stuff but just to take a chance on whoever yeah you know and it could only happen that way I, I think so mm-hmm. do you remember if they played in the basement or if they played on the stage they played on the stage okay. um yeah because I think the whole thing with the either Centro Social or Centro Social, those shows were definitely in the basement. Uh-huh. And I remember hearing stories of like Q and not you playing. Holy shit. You know, St. That's Louis cool. in the basement. And um, it was definitely on the kind of anarchist kind of DIY circuit. So mm-hmm. because, I mean, the Tin Ceiling was only around for a handful of years. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but it definitely set the, at least for me and, my group of friends in South City kind of set the bar of what was to come later. Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah, that was the first DIY space. The way, you know, it had board of directors kind of thing. So did you play your, in, at Tin Ceiling with Nerdcore? Yeah, it was Nerdcore, Feng Shui. Oh shit, we played that show? We played that show together, Oh yeah. my god, I don't, yeah, I do remember that show, yes. Because uh, I... I specifically remember making the flyer in the Metro library and using the Xerox machine. Oh, hell yeah. Um, That's what's up. Yeah. And that was, that was like key to being able to make a flyer uh, for free. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Who played, um, who else was on that show? Carrie's Deli. Although I don't know (laughs) if that band actually existed or actually played. Was that definitely Kellen? That was Kellen and I think ryan or somebody it it was definitely like maybe zach holtzman that would make Um, sense yeah definitely like a fake band that (laughs) played maybe um yeah but i definitely designed you know carrie's deli kd i made the dead kennedy's logo backwards with the (laughs) k and d and drew that 
on a flyer. So. That's, that's and I definitely cool. have that flyer too. So. Oh, dude, um, that rules. Hey, Jim, <laughs> this is such yeah. a rabbit hole. Like the Metro, like lore, like punk scene lore, it is pretty small. It's pretty it's small. It's very small. <laughs> but like this is like richly it right here. <laughs> I'm loving hearing this. This is great. Well, it's just, yeah, it's just so funny how, I mean, all of that kind of links in with the idea of, like, Metro had a battle of the bands that, like, <laughs> yes. we we definitely played, and then bands like The Reactions played mm-hmm. and um, Crafted in Korea. Even. I think I invited Puppet Show at some point. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Like, after a while, like, me and a few other kids, like, kind of, like, took over the battle of bands. Yeah. Um, and instead of it being like the shampoo sharks or like basically some, some oh, like watered down. I forgot band. about that band. You remember that the shampoo sharks? Jim? I just, I just remember that name. Yes. They, I think they had like a pretty good reach. I think they were pretty, they accessible. had a, they had a following and I definitely saw them at the tin ceiling or like, you know, totally the, the YMCA or something, but, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Y- yeah. And like, like uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I feel like there was another, uh, like some other relatively big weird bands that played the, the Battle of the Bands. Oh, the Monstrosities played late on. Late on. Holy uh, cow! <laughs> uh, yeah, there was at some point when, um, uh, I think it was when they played. I think they might have either they won or, I don't know. Something happened where like they had this because it was Metro. They had this like unnecessarily complicated rubric for determining the winner of the winning band. Uh, <laughs> like, of course, it was a rubric because it was fucking Metro. Uh, right. <laughs> and like, at one point, Very like pro. based on the rubric, oh, yeah. like this other band was supposed to have won. Um, and I see their monstrosities or the reactions. Because of course, the reactions are going to tick every box. Um, yeah like do it they're gonna do a really good job and get a really good grade on their music right uh, <laughs> they were the the strokes of st louis exactly totally yeah. uh <laughs> and then kami chung like but we brought like this is like the one that we won we brought like so many people and we had like we had the crowd so they like just threw away the rubric like but we definitely got a lower score than like the you know the band that got second or whatever right right um but I, I don't know. I just remember it being extremely like hilarious that they had a rubric to grade the bands. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> How can funny. you do that? Right. Maybe it is maybe better than them. Go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Maybe them tossing out the rubric was a lesson to you all in the subjectivity <laughs> of uh, how music is perceived. Oh yeah, yeah. I it think is. That's uh, true. It is like funny. It's like oh, you broke the mold, but like not really though. Like. I actually kind of yeah. like thinking about it. I like the rubric more than just like counting money. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like if a lot of places are just like, oh, you brought the most people. Like you sold, you know, $1,600 worth of tickets or whatever. Right. Um, I wish they had the human like audience <laughs> meter kind of person. So. <laughs> the excitometer. Like exactly. a shaky thing at hockey games where like you like make some noise. <laughs> the thermometer right. breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Oh man, yeah, those battle. I mean, the St. Louis, the Metro scene is such a tiny, like, hilarious and like, uh, like a little bit of patheticness to it because it's just so small. It's like, like twelve people. Right. And well, then, I think that's that kind of shows. I don't know how it all kind of 
evolves from these things and it's, mm-hmm. it's all really about like a platform and the fact that like you or me or whoever could be hey this band from central should play the our battle of the bands mm-hmm. because we don't have enough bands at metro to <laughs> compete that kind of um True. gatekeeping might not be the right word but uh the fact that we could bring in other bands and all those bands went on to other bands and and mm-hmm. St. Louis being such a small city, you know those people for years, and then sometimes they stick around and they're in your favorite band. So yeah, totally. I think that's really key. You know, just having the space and the platform, and I think things like that, the funny things like a battle of the bands or your your older sister's part <laughs> of a club, or like yeah. you know South City Y shows and like hell yeah the ymca hosting a punk show how crazy is that like i don't think that could happen now but yeah um you definitely saw some some people who were like hey let's be punk as fuck at the south city y yeah those were some of the those sublet shows were some of the like most wonderful like show memories i have do you have a story to tell about going about those shows absolutely um so the south city y on sublet i think it all went back to maybe ida cell maybe Mm -hmm. yeah one of the first shows i i want to say there was the two keys house in where was that richmond heights maybe Mm -hmm. but that whole crew had like keanu reeves review kill me kate uh in medias race and like Mm -hmm. corbeta corbata and basically i'm pretty sure that's where i saw corbeta corbata like play for the first time yeah south city y and those bands were you know just a few years older than me but definitely out of high school and definitely old enough to be like yeah we can fuck shit up and kind of get away with it um Mm -hmm. like be you know they had their own little crew and like who's playing power violence at the south city y (laughs) so Yeah. yeah so i remember you know going to see at least one of the shows there being like okay here's all these like kind of thrash and punky bands at a Y I don't know what this is about Mm -hmm. but um like I'm definitely into it I remember specifically being there you know I think my sophomore year and uh running into this kid who I went to second grade with at uh most precious blood catholic school (laughs) and it was um Tom Valley who like ended up playing in all of these all these bands in St. Louis, like Shaved Women and just, I mean, Maximum Effort just became the, the drummer in St. Louis in the like 2010s and, and whatnot. So mm-hmm. yeah. um, I ran into him and he was like, are you Josh Levi? And I was like, are you Tom Valley? And <laughs> so we had gone to the same Catholic school for mm-hmm. only one year in second grade and yeah. then both left and never went back to Catholic school. <laughs> Years later, found out we both were into like punk together so and yeah it was through those type of shows that i met just like all those punk and hardcore bands i met don beasley and ben smith and everyone yeah and i will and as an aside i will say obviously i was into like weird music and punk and hardcore and then graduated into liking experimental and noise and that's like kind of the scene i've been a part of for the greater past decades or whatever yeah but I remember seeing this guy, Jesse Deutsch and Danny McLean, who mm-hmm. people know, you know, yes. Granulina and R.I.P. Yes, Johnny Angel, just like such an amazing drummer. But yeah. he was 
they were in a duo called i want to say like boy power or something (laughs) and it was just like a loop pedal and some feedback and it was like a noise show it was like a noise performance and i was like this sucks but i but it's (laughs) it's it's definitely weird and they look cool so it kind of like crept in on my radar and also put into my brain like these are forms of extreme music and they kind of go together and you Mm -hmm. know what else comes from that and Mm -hmm. so i think even though this maybe one-off performance at the at a corner of the south city y like (laughs) you know all that builds and kind of adds you know what you what you think about music so i was very very fortunate to be around that yeah i'm glad i got to see danny mclean play not a lot but i think i saw him once maybe twice yeah yeah no he was uh such an incredible performer and drummer and just uh, like great personality and i was yeah very fortunate to be around him and to to kind of see him any chance i got mm-hmm. like um so yeah r.i.p yeah totally one thing I really liked about those sublet shows was, uh, and kind of some of the random, like the, the shows that were at really like random venues, mm-hmm. uh, was that they kind of didn't uh, care much for genre. And like, it would just be a mishmash of like people more than who were friends uh, or just admirers of each other than like bands that went together. Oh, right. I mean, I think Saving Boy Wonder played <laughs> one of those shows. Yeah. And like, you would see some weird kind of pop punk band next to like a thrash band yeah and that was really cool because i mean hopefully uh, the littlest bit that puts something else on someone's radar that they might not be aware of Mm -hmm, and the whole st louis thing you're going to run into that person (laughs) down the road if you play music at all yeah you You stick around if you that's the whole thing i think it's the sticking around so Mm -hmm. um it's really yeah crazy to see like just how how that happens and mm-hmm. uh, and those small connections that you made you know the tin ceiling or the why like i still know those people so mm-hmm. it's yeah it's just if you want to stick around or not <laughs> yeah totally so do you remember that seven shot screamers even played one of those uh sublet shows did they, they played at the sublet why yeah i, think I that don't was the last one and that they played oh wow but, i don't uh, think i remember that one <laughs> they, i remember them like because uh, so we were all so young but at that point like the seven shot screamers at least to me being and to us being like you know between 14 and 17 years old they seemed like just like the oldest dudes uh, oh, but yeah. I think they were like between still between like 24 and 28 or something like they were right. still basically like kids, but like they had better hair um, <laughs> and they just seemed clothes. like put together or something. And I don't right. know, they're they, kind of big. I don't know. Like that's... they were like a band that I always considered like we're trying to make it. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And but like later down the road when I would meet people, they were like, oh, yeah, I went to high school with that person. I, mm-hmm. I would be like, wait, you're only a few years older than I am. So, totally. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just funny, but yeah, it's crazy to think, well, I mean, before all of COVID, I was actually going to that YMCA Mm -hmm, (laughs) to work out and would every, every single time I'd like kind of look down at the, you know, pool table area and just think, wow, it's so crazy that I saw all these bands here and like one, I don't think it could happen again. And two, it's just like 
a fun memory to think of this space. I mean, I definitely, some of my best friends I met at the Y, so yeah, totally. that's pretty cool. Yeah, Ben Smith said that he works out at that Y, too. <laughs> Holy cow, yeah. I mean, it's a great, uh, as Ys go, I mean, it's a really nice one. It's like brand new, like 20 years ago. I definitely have somewhere a VHS of, it's like a cut-up quick edit that someone handed me of like Keanu Reeves review playing at the sublet Y and just like someone was wearing a strobe light hat and throwing tons of paper plates around and everyone (laughs) at the Y just being like pissed and um and yeah Corbeta Corbata played Kill Me Kate I saw a Kill Me Kate show where uh the fight broke out um sounds about right yeah just like weird <laughs> weird times but uh the y is wholesome so it's so wholesome <laughs> so you're like i'm gonna see bands at the y and you're like all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's was, fine do you remember the pizza there was fucking pizza <sighs> there was pizza like there free was, pizza yeah I, it might have i think maybe it was only one of the shows but on at one of the shows and uh, i think bridget was running I'm thinking the show I'm thinking of Bridget was running it. Um, oh wow, Bridget Fisher and she. Yeah, uh, I just remember there at one point like thirty pizzas were delivered. I I vaguely remember that. Yeah, it's just oh my god, talk about like a like a loving community where it's just like oh our scene is the shit. Like, yeah, you're all just we have pizza. Yeah, pause <laughs> on the show. Everyone crams into the little kitchen area, and you're all just like ch- like sweaty and chilling and eating pizza. Well, I um, think that's like what people love, you know. Yeah. They love the, <laughs> as much as people love gigs, like people love talking to each other and having a brief moment <laughs> yeah. to kind of, to catch up. So we've heard the, uh, the prank war story from Ben and we've heard it from Mike. <laughs> the uh, prank, oh, the prank war. The Corbetta-Corbata oh Conformist uh, Missouri tour uh, prank war. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you remember of this, this legend this legend oh, of our podcast and also the scene <laughs> um i should i should say i was 17 years old i think i was either a junior or a senior and the conformists and corbeta corbata invited me on two different weekend tours and my dad said it was cool to go on both of them so <laughs> oh, cool that's that was like for me, the coolest thing, like the coolest thing in the world, because they were like my favorite St. Louis bands. Yeah, I, like I'm, I'm a fucking nerd, and they know I'm a geek for like their bands, but they like are my friends too. So, um, I want to say the prank war. The the most infamous one is a dead fish. <laughs> <laughs> that I want to say I'm pretty sure the conformists got a dead fish and put it in Corbeta Corbata's van, which I was in, Mm -hmm. which was a big mistake because I think I knew about it and knew it was coming. And I just, I remember drive home. Someone had to smoke a cigar to get rid of the smell of the fish. (laughs) So there's just whiffs of fish and cigar which is so disgusting (laughs) and like everyone mad at me because i i kind of helped facilitate the joke you know the prank (laughs) um gosh what what did they say (laughs) 
I think Ben and uh, Mike remember it as uh, the the fish going in the conformist van. Okay, okay. Um, there was like a bunch of bumper stickers and a rental van because someone's van broke down. Oh man, yes. Uh, and stink bombs. There were, yes, I was gonna say stink bombs. Olive um, oil is olive oil ring a bell. I'm pretty sure it was motor oil, and I think <laughs> it was you know. I, I got to ride in both vans, which was awesome, but mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm, totally. <laughs> it's like double um, punishment right there. Yeah, because you never knew who was getting what. But um, <laughs> yeah. I definitely remember being on the highway and watching someone either open up a window or a door oh, of, the, of their van and just toss out like either olive oil or motor oil <laughs> and it just hitting the windshield and being like, well, this is bad. <laughs> oh man, yeah. yeah but um, but yeah, that I mean, that was that was like some of the best best times at you know being in high school, getting to go on tour, and with like two of my favorite bands, and and yeah, it was two bands that are so different, but yeah. like very mm-hmm. complementary in the like you know if you're going to use the word angular or like yeah, whatever, right. mm-hmm. but like, I think it was really cool to see those bands kind of represent whatever the scene was at the time. Yeah. And for people out of town to kind of, you know, that's a good showing I'd say. Yeah, totally. Corbeta, Corbata and the conformists. Yeah. You both know that St. Louis has some of the best bands and some of the greatest history, but like it's central to St. Louis because it's so hard to get out of the, you know, to tour and mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. get the network going. And like, it's hard for people to pay attention to what's happening in the Midwest sometimes. So yeah. when, at what point um, doing music and uh, kind of like going to shows, did you start like documenting it like taking pictures i remember you doing photography a lot um yeah and um, um and then eventually you wrote for rft right yeah i wrote for the rft i want to say like later on i mean obviously later on yeah. but um i started taking pictures i mean i've always taken pictures since i was a kid with like disposable cameras because that's what was around yeah my earliest like archives probably go back probably like freshman year uh-huh. i definitely have shows from like the tin ceiling and i definitely have battle of the bands pictures and like lemp pictures mm-hmm. and like that was always important to me yeah just to me personally because i was so invested and like because i loved my friends and and uh, so for me it was just like okay here's a snapshot and i would always see people whoever the f- photographers were at shows were always like people were kind of annoyed by them so i always i always had like you know a pause about it like uh i hate being that guy but i'm gonna do it yeah totally. <laughs> um totally. but i always you know tried to do it tastefully and like not be in people's faces and stuff like that but so i i definitely have like a good archive dating back to like 2000 i'd say sick yeah because 2000 i was a freshman You've probably got uh, the best one in the scene. I, I mean, I think at least in our in our weird corner of the scene, you know, maybe there's some like pop punk aficionado in like out at Limburg or something who like did the right. same thing or something. <laughs> but, like, well, yeah, I mean, there were so many. The funny thing is, yeah, yeah, that like county city divide or whatever. But like, there were so many little scenes, you know, yeah. all facilitated by STL punk, which yes. I'm sure you'll mm-hmm. touch on at some point. But um, absolutely, like that's all part of it 
and um, and yeah, I, I knew one photographer like Tony Lasore, mm-hmm, uh, if you mm-hmm. know that Tony J, um, yeah. who took like awesome film photographs of all the bands that played at like Two Keys and all those hardcore bands. I remember I'd get glimpses on like message boards or STL Punk, and just thinking like, yeah, it's important to take pictures of like bands because who's going to do it you know right so i i definitely have like tons of photos of scarecrow the conformists yowie ghost dice like every weird band tons of lemp photos a lot are crappy but there are some really really good ones too mm-hmm. it's interesting because i just moved back to st louis it's been a year mm-hmm. i don't know how that happened but um you know reconnecting And it's always like, what do you do with these things? And ultimately, I want to share them, but uh, I kind of get tripped up in my own perfectionism. Like, I want it to be good and uh, thoughtful. So hopefully soon people will see these photos, because why hold on to them if no one's going to see them? Are you thinking of doing like an online archive or a live show, or what are you thinking? I wanted to do a show, but... Who knows when that will happen? Right, um, right. I think I would like to do like a digital archive online because, yeah, I think, you know, people want to see it. I think people are nostalgic. And that's the thing, like St. Louis has so much history, but there's no, it's all bits and pieces. What you are doing is, is important, telling those stories that otherwise it's just us talking to no one. So, right. so I'll, I'll, get, I'll get them up somewhere. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be interested. That's, uh, yeah, I don't know, the work you've done for years is like, that's so valuable. It's just, um, it's hard for, um, hard to realize how valuable it is when you're doing it. That's what um, I'm actually, I've actually, I'm going through some tapes as well. Some, um, some like mini DV tapes and some mm-hmm. VHS tapes uh, that I will, I think I'll just put on YouTube because that seems to be the, uh, the thing to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, can you speak to your transition from playing in bands to to getting into noise music? Yeah, sure. So, like I was, you know, I've been talking about, you know, the tin ceiling and and the why and my introduction to the, all these bands. And I remember specifically the summer of two thousand two. You know, I started getting emails from Yowie or Scarecrow or um, uh, Chris Minkowski from Brain Transplant was a big uh, force uh, booking a lot of like noise acts. And, you know, I knew about noise and I listened to a little bit of it, but like wasn't going to see a lot of it. But um, I remember getting a email uh, when I was on summer vacation, like with my family or something being like this show's happening at a place called lamp art center like hmm. what what is that yeah i want to say like the tin ceiling was either winding down or like having issues or something i shows started to like move away from there i think they were um, getting noise complaints i think so yeah and um where do people go to see shows or like where there was a weird thing in the st louis scene where there was some some gatekeeping at venues like the high point in the creepy crawl where you had to know somebody to get in and yeah. like book a show and you'd imagine these venues need bands to play and, and things yeah. like that so yeah anytime a new venue or new space popped up you checked it out luckily my dad was like coming from music himself and like understanding what i was about and understanding i wasn't like an asshole kid 
yeah. um, was like, yeah, you can go to shows, you know, just come home. <laughs> right, right. I couldn't go to the, any of the summer shows at LEMP in 2002, but the first show I went to was, I think, in September 2002. Mm-hmm. And it was this band called 25 Swabs. Um, they were on Bulb Records. And uh, this group Phallus Chalice played. Uh, yeah. This other, this like made up band called Dick Hole that uh, had <laughs> um, Max Eisenberg and maybe Chris Minkowski and definitely like people in the noise scene. And I wasn't friends with them yet. So that whole experience being like, okay, I know like some of the people at the show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I went to that show. Phallus Chalice was kind of a performance art slash music, just total oddly confrontational act. I remember they they did a dodgeball game inside of Lemp and threw <laughs> a ball through one of those old glass windows and everyone was just bummed out <laughs> oh, so that's man. like my that's like my introduction like the and cabinet then, windows or like the yeah the cabinet windows? one of the cabinet windows so uh, yeah that's happening it's weird i'm seeing kind of like you know weird weird bands uh free improv i want to say like rick wilson from scarecrow's project two lips might have opened that show and that that might have been why i went yeah but ultimately all those like conformists and scarecrow and like people i knew through the tin ceiling were putting on you know this other show that's like lemp when it was still people drank there and the shows went really late and there was no like real like mark was there but like it it felt more like a house show or something like that so so that like that kind of party vibe was like my introduction and so yeah i went there and was just kind of like okay i guess this is like the new spot (laughs) right yeah i know it was Um, a bit yeah yeah so and then it just all rolled from there because lemp was a space that you could get involved with and like and book shows at so Mm -hmm. um yeah I, i had met mark how do you pronounce his last name uh sarich i had met mark there and you know how old would i have been 15 15 going on 16 or something and was just like hey can i book shows here Mm -hmm. and he was like yeah sure because like i knew the conformists and scarecrow and yaoi and all them and if they were booking there like so could i so that's kind of how i got involved and then yeah that space became a big part of my life for like the next couple of years mm-hmm. um definitely like the primary space that i felt comfortable enough to like book and run my own shows and kind of like really learned how to do it i'd forgotten that there was a time where you could drink alcohol at the lamp art center and recalling the story that mark told me about when he decided to put the, the kibosh you know, there it is <laughs> <laughs> thank you um yeah i mean that's that is pretty wild that alcohol was like a big part of Lemp's early days. And I think because, you know, it was adults booking there. And the whole all-ages element didn't come into play for, like, another year. Um, and I think that all kind of revolved around Mark working towards, like, the full-on nonprofit status yeah. and, and things like that. So, <laughs> so yeah. I have these memories of, uh, yeah, just, like, seeing, like, the conformist, like, Mike and his uh, wife or girlfriend at the time and, like, 
you know, maybe like Jim or something like sharing red wine. Right. And like Mark drinking like Slivovitz in like the in the backyard or wherever and just like having alcohol like and it's no big deal. Yeah, maybe right. most of 2002 was like that there. I, it just seemed like it definitely wasn't a big deal for a while. And it felt more like an like a like an art gallery for that first part where they had booze and like, you know, often there'd be some kind of snack or something. too. When was the first time I saw Yowie? I was going to... Um, ask you if it was the same show where i saw them for the first time which was like uh at the creepy crawl uh and it was i think it was cheer accident was the headliner but it was like i just remember it because all of our high school like contingent was there like ryan zach holtzman i think maybe also the conformist play which is probably why we bothered to go um yeah yeah uh, and i remember too because i think that was also the first time i ever went to the creepy crawl because i tried to like I think I just was reluctant to go there because it sounded gross and everyone said it was gross. Uh-huh. And I just like had no interest in going there, but like this show, enough people were going and it seemed like it would be like cool enough that like it was worth bothering, I guess. Um, but that right. show was pretty early. I think that was 02. Okay. So anyway, they've been around. Yeah. Definitely. Like I, yeah. I want to say that show that I missed in 2002, like the first email that I got, it was uh, at Lemp. Like, I think it was this band called No Doctors and Yowie. Damn. And, like, never heard of Yowie. Like, never heard of any of them, but was like, okay, this is from the Brain Transplant email show list. I should know what this place is, I guess. So, Word. Um, so Yowie's, yeah, Yowie's been around for a while. But, yeah. gosh, I, I definitely have some pictures of like early yaoi shows with like scarecrow and stuff like that fuck yeah that's yeah. cool sean said that their first show was with cine nominee which always sort of blew my mind a little bit oh man <laughs> and it <laughs> was at crazy. some it was at like some house where they were booking shows in on like the north side and uh yeah i don't know that's just crazy because cine nominee um i don't know i just wouldn't put them together but like if you're friends it doesn't matter or whatever but there are similarities in their like technically mm-hmm. crazy you know <laughs> yeah and cine nominee they they seem to play a lot of like they, they they play with noise acts and they play with metal and they play with like i guess they play with math rock right yeah they definitely kind of have elements of like post hardcore and like math rock i was late to the game with them but like i love them they are so good yeah i mean they were like such a pro band <laughs> yeah and like dedicated to their craft and totally like enjoyed playing music for themselves which is like always great to see mm-hmm. yeah um, they're such like a heavy heavy like weird <laughs> band mm-hmm. like that so. yeah yeah real technically beautiful technically perfect yeah uh, clean yeah. clean quiet they're not that loud for what you might expect they'd be <laughs> how did you get to the point of improvising in warm hands oh yeah well that's like i would say getting into noise you know more and more going to lemp seeing shows that chris Minkowski uh from brain transplant books seeing brain transplant dave stone meeting Jer- jeremy canapel ghost ice who i'm pretty sure to this day hates that i am like his number one fan <laughs> we're, we're like we're buds, but like I know it bugs the hell out of them. <laughs> That's um, <laughs> and if we're talking archive, I have 
just so many ghost ice photos and videos and they're all like amazing and perfect so that's awesome, awesome. For, for me personally that's like <laughs> like the gem of the archive yeah so and i'm sure he'd hate to hear that too because he doesn't release stuff right so that's a funny story he does not release anything and rarely plays nowadays but like at the height of the mid 2000s to the early 2010s like he would play all the time and i like i it was just like the best and he would play on the like the weird punk shows but he'd also play on the noise shows and the like no wave shows and it was just the best so yeah but jeremy was like one of those people that were big influences on my like life i would say like rick wilson mike banker ben smith for sure yeah jeremy being one of those people and just kind of seeing like him and chris mankowski like booking shows booking like the weirdest music i've ever seen yeah that had like such a big influence on me and specifically those two for noise music because you know one of the troubling things about noise music is the entry point because you can listen to music you can listen to like noise music and kind of get it or you know it might take you a couple listens but like seeing it live is completely different you know when you have those people that you like trust that like I don't know what band this is or what like act this is, but you you booked it, so it's got to be good. That was such a heavy heavy influence on me. Jeremy and Chris definitely brought weird acts that were just like some of the most life changing things I've ever seen. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and to have like venues for that was so important because yeah, maybe you'd see something like that at the Creepy Crawl or like the High Point or some gallery, but like. To have a dedicated venue that was like okay to see music and like book weird music like no questions asked like that's all hand in hand and that's like what places like uh like the Lempart center and radio cherokee like represented yeah so that definitely had a big influence so i was playing in some kind of like post hardcore kind of screamo band called sleep away mm-hmm. <laughs> with mm-hmm. matt Alsop and like oh yeah Gr- griffin k and some other people uh-huh. that was kind of towards the end of my high school days and we definitely played a battle of the bands uh at metro and i remember playing like sideways on the stage and people thinking like oh that's weird (laughs) so that's you know a weird screamo band at your high school but like summer of 2004 i had just graduated i was still like involved in lemp like booking shows and um there's this band called pitter pat from chicago oh yeah that i was like booking it was like one of the the bigger shows that i had put together at lemp and i was like okay i'll get the happening to play and i'll get so many dynamos to play just to like get as many people as i could to this gig and jeremy was like you should play and i was like i like what should i do and um i just started hanging out with my friend Dave Gretemann, who was also like into weird noise music. And we had connected through some friends from a show I uh, went to at Radio Cherokee, but we hadn't never played music together. And Jeremy was like, you should do a noise duo with Dave. <laughs> and so we practiced a couple times and we were like, okay, let's come up with a weird name. And uh, we called ourselves Worm Hands. And that was like- nice the real start to playing straight up noise music. Mm-hmm. And it's all because like Jeremy was like, you should do this. 
that was like summer of 2004. And um, I remember my mom had given me like a Dan Electro, like electric acoustic kind of guitar Mm -hmm. one summer. And I was like, I can't really jam with this. Um, (laughs) So what should I do? And um, Dave was like, you should get a mixer. And when you plug the mixer into itself, it creates a tone. It's a no input mixer. And you can play like noise music with that. So I took this guitar to Guitar Center in Crestwood. Hell yeah. And, <laughs> and they were like, you can have 50 bucks. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll take like this Behringer mixer. And so I still feel bad about it because my mom asks every once in a while, what happened to that guitar? Um, <laughs> and that's like, that was my main, the, the mixer was my main instrument for like so many years. Yeah, yeah. Found a broken like delay rack in a basement somewhere. I don't yeah. even remember. Plugged that into the thing and then just started making noise. So You yeah. sold the guitar that your mom gave you to make the devil's music. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, That's mom. Awesome. <laughs> I think yeah. we have to start a drinking game where every time someone mentions the Crestwood Guitar Center, we have to drink. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. So that uh, that's a quite an auspicious beginning playing uh, with playing the Pitter Pat show for your first Warm Hands show. Oh yeah, that's, um, cool. <laughs> that's cool. It's also interesting that's like that's a very not noise show to be playing your first noise set. Well, yeah, I think that's like a cool part of it in that like yeah, place like Lamp, you know, any of those DIY spaces that weren't necessarily a traditional venue where mm-hmm. people were like, yeah, you can mix it up that's totally fine and you know that's a huge part of it because when it's all acts of the same genre it can kind of be i mean sometimes it's perfect but like you know sometimes you're like where's the variety or where's the you know something different so i think that was like one of the cool things that lamp really succeeded at having like kind of those varied lineups or or like giving the space for people to say book whoever you want it doesn't have to be this one type of show yeah was uh was sleep away did you have any other uh like once you were doing sleep away and then warm hands did you have any other um band like bands or was it mostly noise noise type stuff i was doing this band called jet black (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was like joe from kill me kate and like mitch from Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, uh-huh. and Mikey Bones, who was in like Love Lost but Not Forgotten. Oh man, yeah. So and then me. <laughs> yeah, and definitely like that type of, like it was supposed to be like the kind of weirder hardcore stuff. Yeah. That kind of ended for me, you know, and like noise kind of became more of a focus, you know, just like friend groups kind of move apart sometimes and uh Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely fell straight into like noise like 2004 2005 and uh, Mm um started seeing more acts and booking more shows and i was definitely open to booking all sorts of stuff but like yeah, noise and weirdo music definitely took the took the reins there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you move to DC? So I moved to DC in 2012. Okay. And I was there for seven years. Gotcha. Okay. Did you continue to book noise acts in DC? Yes, I did. <laughs> can I can I talk about St. Louis just a little? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More? yeah um, of course. I would say that like St. Louis. I definitely got my whole like booking chops 
at at LEMP and through booking at LEMP. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as shows kind of move to other venues or other like, you know, Jeremy's house, uh, the fun dungeon mm-hmm. and spooky action palace in Dogtown, which was like my neighborhood. Um, yeah. I definitely like booked more of this like certain type of underground noise music. Yeah. And that would like later move on to venues like uh, Floating Laboratories, which was on the riverfront, like of the, mm. like South Broadway. Like that was a warehouse space on the river yeah. where there was like no noise limitations. <laughs> and I think that was a, a big part of it because as you might remember, like Lemp was having issues with its neighbors and like you had to keep the door closed mm-hmm. and, yeah. and the time ah! restraints, it could be like definitely hindering on certain types of extreme music totally yeah so i could i could see like that aspect and people's you know some people just want to drink and party at shows so (laughs) yeah that whole kind of thing lent to booking at other places and and for a while like yeah spooky action palace and then later on when apop records moved to cherokee street in like 2000 and i want to say like eight 2007 2008 Mm -hmm. like all of these for me like went from one to the next to the next and because i had like this foundational thing and like way of promoting and i knew like i i make the flyers and i know who to book and just being so in touch with everything like i could book anywhere and like get get the people to go to those places and that was yeah that was cool yeah and having like the freedom like noise music is just so volume based a lot of the time like there's definitely quieter music like quieter experimental music and drone and ambient but like noise is often extreme and loud and and the venue is a big part of that so that's kind of like how things moved for me uh my wife had an op well my girlfriend at the time later became my wife had Mm -hmm. an opportunity to move to dc Mm -hmm. in uh 2012 Mm -hmm. and i believe i was 26 at the time Mm -hmm. yeah i guess i should say yeah in 2009 i started playing solo under the radiator grays like name yeah my first show was at one of the uh noise fests at lamp which people will remember as like a reoccurring thing but yes, in the summer of 2012, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, had an opportunity to uh, move to D.C. for a job and was just like, I'm a lifer in St. Louis. Like, I love St. Louis and I could totally be fine living here for the rest of my life. But there was definitely something inside saying, like, uh, you should probably try it out, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. What what do you have to lose? St. Louis will always be here, and you can always come back. I was never like a hater of St. Louis. I, yeah. and you know, I'd be happy to come back. So yeah, I went out there with my wife and like knew no one. Yeah. Um, and that that can be like a very scary thing, and um, just like what do you do? So mm-hmm. how do you meet people? And fortunately, I had like such a strong connection to underground music that both of you know that st louis is smack dab in the middle of the country and Mm -hmm. it's so hard to like get to if you're on the coast on either coast really yeah i always 
appreciated like my friends in Providence and my friends in, you know, mm-hmm. New York and wherever, like that would somehow end up in St. Louis. Like I'd book the show. Yeah. I'd see them once a year and like <laughs> yeah. we'd we'd be bu- we'd be buds forever, but like I saw you once a year yeah. and it was at a show. And mm-hmm. you know, it's one night. But um, suddenly being on that coast in the mid-Atlantic, I was immediately like close to Richmond, two hours from Richmond, Mm -hmm. uh, 45 minutes from Baltimore, Mm -hmm. two and a half hours from Philly, four hours from New York. And just the frequency that I could see these like artists and musicians that I saw once a year if I was lucky, I now had like more access and was able to travel more. And yeah, so, so many people had said DC is one of the hardest like places to get a show. Like I don't, I've never had a good show there or I've never played there at all, you know? Right. So that's, that's where I like kind of plugged in, started booking shows out there. So where would you book? I mean, especially for kind of like anything artistic related in dc it was very much like like a victim of the gentrification kind of scheme of things Mm -hmm. and like like you can't afford to be an artist because you can't live in the city because you can't afford like you know two thousand dollar rent i had like linked up with this guy jacob who had just moved to dc from richmond Mm -hmm. and he was like you like noise music i like noise music do you want to book shows and I said, yeah, sure. Basically booked anywhere we could. If that was like an Ethiopian restaurant, we did that. If it was like, there was one warehouse that that was consistently available for shows and that was called Union Arts. And it was just like a rarity, like one of the last rare spaces in DC. And I was able to book there. What part of town was that in? That was, um, it was like New York Ave, like by the New York Ave Metro. It's mm-hmm. like a kind of by a train yard but definitely like was bought out to become a boutique hotel (laughs) (laughs) which Uh, is like typical yeah once union art closed in like 20 gosh i don't know like 2015 or 2016 there was a very brief period where like the diy community was like okay what now and there was a is it cool that i'm talking about oh hell yeah no no this is super cool okay you know because like it's about the journey, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's no. About, like, yeah. That's the the crazy thing about if you stick around, like if you stick around and keep doing this, like everything sh- tells me I should not. <laughs> you don't make any money. You don't. You don't like. Yeah. The yeah. lot the losses of being a part of underground music. <laughs> um, yeah. Are many, although the riches that come from it in relationships and friends and creativity. Um, I think definitely outweigh all of that. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. this is like the road, the road that I chose and it all started from like the tin ceiling essentially. Yeah. But, um, summer of, I think 2016, um, as union arts was closing this house in Tacoma park, Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, which I lived right next to it opened, it's called rhizome and it was started by these three, I want to say mid 40s, mid to late 40s gentlemen who were all, okay, DC needs an art space Mm -hmm. and performance space. We have the means and the want to foster this community. And they ended up renting a house in Tacoma Park, Maryland, that was solely dedicated to exhibits, music performance, and like workshops. 
And that was like, I think like almost anywhere, because, you know, most big cities suffer from those art spaces closing and mm-hmm. um, and things like that. This was a true, it saved DC's DIY community, essentially, because no one lived there. It was, yeah. it's solely for performing and workshops. And, you know, it's the reason it's there is because people care and want it to exist. So yeah, yeah. that truly um, allowed me to, you know, they saw that I was dedicated and they believed in what I did and trusted my curation. And they had really allowed me to um, continue booking music in DC up until when I left in the summer of 2019. That's awesome. Of course, so, it's in Tacoma Park, too, like the one cool place in DC. Well, like the one of, right, the, right. One of the few, I should say. That's me. It's a very <laughs> cool part of DC. <laughs> it's a very cool part and uh, definitely very crunchy. Yeah. And uh, John Fahey, like, comes from there and, mm. you know, all sorts mm-hmm. of cool. I mean, DC has so much cool history, so much musical history. It was cool to be a part of that. Like I said, I booked shows in St. Louis and was able to translate that to this new city where I knew no one and then just instantly had a community to kind of fall into and grow nice. with. Yeah. And um, and like that's so important because, you know, had I moved there and not had music, like I don't know if I would have lasted in D.C., really. And as, as another side note, one of the last shows I booked in St. Louis before I moved was Chain in the Gang, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. where oh, yeah. Ian Svenonius like fronted that band. Yeah. And so like little did I know I would move to D.C. just like a few months later. And so <laughs> I would see him all the time and like, you know, talk with him and and meet a couple of those like legends of DC. So <laughs> it was truly like cool to just like plug in from that experience. So yeah. Um, Cause like, you know, that's, that also lends the, the whole narrative of like lifers and people who are like dedicated to lifelong like, to the underground. So yeah, totally. um, it's definitely cool. And uh, yeah. And Josh, just, did you ever yeah, sit yeah. on the uh, discord records porch? Uh, I did. I did. Like <laughs> nice. it took. It took. If Caleb and I were never able to meet up, it took me six years to like go to the Discord house, which yeah, was like yeah. only a couple miles away. So, <laughs> so yeah, I was able to do that. Um, I worked cool. at a bookstore where I was actually able to host one of Ian Svenonius's, um like book releases. One of his readings met Ian Mackay. And like all sorts of cool stuff. So the people are there just like people are here and you're going to run into them because they're still into the all the cool, cool stuff and still a part of the scene or whatever. So the uh, yeah, politics and prose is a pretty dope bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like really cool, really historic mm-hmm. and like such a D.C institution without not in the same shitty way (laughs) yeah yeah you know all the more so now that comet ping pong is like the epicenter for like insane theories conspiracy theories about stuff oh right and that was two doors down from where i worked so and that place hosted shows too so oh um, i didn't know that that's cool yeah i remember so like it was such a hype it was such a hike to go up to that part of town to go to it, like to go to whatever, like a reading or something that I usually try right. to also that, go to comment when I went there. I mean, that's like one of those DC things. 
you know, you have to consider how are people going to get to the show if most people don't have cars and it's a mile away from the metro and, yeah. you know, the metro closes at midnight <laughs> and all those, like, logistical things. Yeah. Much like, you know, in St. Louis, everyone's got to have a car to yeah. get anywhere. And, like, yeah. you got to think about that. And, you know, it all plays into into it. Interesting. Yeah. What kind of bands would play at Comet? Definitely more, like, bopper garage garagey kind of indie pop bands i'd say Uh definitely like cool cool bands uh that could play at other established venues but they went here because they knew it was more of like a diy kind of route and that usually lends to a funner show so yeah right on cool well that was a nice decent tangent i mean it, it was meaningful for me um, well, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I hope that's interesting to to someone. But I mean, I if found anything, it interesting. Oh, good, good. Oh, yeah, and I like I became buds with Chris Richards from Q and Not You, who is like the cultural cool. um, editor at the Washington Post, and like, what? who knew that would happen? But it's just because, like, yeah. you know, people interested in music and underground culture, if they stick around, they you know, you're going to run into them. So, um, so that was like, uh, you know, just a really cool aspect of it all. And, you know, meeting DC natives, like, which is a rarity for that town, which is so transient and like all the amazing music that comes from there. And like I said, I always knew I could come back to St. Louis and one day, you know, we did, we had a kid and the opportunity came about and, you know, I'm happy to be back. You had like a newsletter, Flood Your Face. Oh, yeah. Was yeah. what it was? Okay, can you talk a little bit about that? So, gosh, when did I start doing that? I would say maybe like 2004. I was coming to the end of high school and started booking more. I was like heavily involved at LEMP still, but like wanted to figure out a way that I could like promote shows, I guess, more efficiently. And what always seemed to work for Chris Minkowski was like his email newsletter. I also like remember being in high school and looking at his website, like braintransplant.org and just seeing, he listed like, these are acts that I have brought to town and just had like a huge list. And I loved like looking at these lists and like being Mm -hmm. able to say like, oh, I went to that show or like I went to this show. You know, having an email list kind of gives you like a living record of what you're doing or whatever like that so i was like okay i should send out emails um about what i'm doing so people can can come to the shows i called it flood your face uh because my friend dave had like suggested that being like here's some crazy name or (laughs) or whatever Mm -hmm. because the first noise fest uh at lemp was in 2004 and Mark was like, you should help book this. And we kind of had a, like, couldn't really settle on the name. And I wanted to, I wanted to call it Flood Your Face Fest. <laughs> but it ended up being the Midwest Noise Fest, Festival, or, you know, Noise Fest. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. I just took that, yeah, I took that name and then just was like, okay, this is what the newsletter is. And like, I made a blog spot too and yet i was like okay this is going to be focused on noise and like kind of weird punk and just like anything that's in that window 
and hopefully people will know like if I'm a part of it, like it's worth going to or something. That's just like what I'm into. So hopefully you're into it too. And yeah, that was like a passion project of mine for like a good number of years. And like, you know, later I would work at A-pop records and book shows there and like include those events and like that later as my energy and focus kind of shifted away, like Joe Hess and Mabel like started mm-hmm. Wrong Division and had their like version of that and um, also their radio show, which, um, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. you know, all, all lends to it. So that's kind of like the the history behind that. That's cool. Well, I always appreciated flood your face uh, because I could always find a good show that way. You. It's cool to like look look back on that blog spot or like if I type in you know in the in my email I could be like oh man this week in 2006 was like crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have my Hotmail account is just like all the way back to 2006 with Lemp newsletters yeah. and bulletins. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. cool. Well, yeah, I think you know that stuff is just. I mean, I'm an archivist, like, I totally uh, appreciate that history. And like, if you talk to people, everyone's like, we got to get away, we have to figure a way to get off Facebook, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. And so many people leading up into the pandemic, like relied on Facebook for promoting their shows and hated it. And Mm -hmm. that's giving me this opportunity because I was like, I got to get off this thing. Um, but now since shows are on hold, like now I can really actually do it. But I'm finding myself saying like, I should look back and at least write down these shows that like only exist on Facebook. Like the history (laughs) is only there. Like if I, I was looking up floating laboratories and I was like, I, I have my shows that I book there, but what other shows happen there? And like, so I had to go and dig through Facebook to find them. But the person that, ran that Kevin Harris was like, I'm deleting this page. And I was thinking, okay, this is going to be gone forever. If that's like St. Louis history, like never existed essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So I think that's like really important. Um, which leads me to talk about, um, what is his name? Is it like Allie, you know, uh, at Lemp, he contacted me a couple yeah. of years ago and was, was like, I'm redoing the Lemp archive and like the show list. Whoa. And, Damn. and he that's was like, cool. He was like, I know it's a huge undertaking, but Mark said to reach out to you because you have like the original list printed out because when I started, you know, um, booking at LEMP and like was on the board of LEMP or whatever, I found this printed out (laughs) uh, list of shows and was just like, "Uh, we should do something with this. (laughs) Um, So like right now, LEMP has in the past shows list like this awesome pretty comprehensive i'm sure there's some stuff i might still have um but like a pretty comprehensive list of like every show that's happened there and i love looking at that i love like you know finding venues in other towns like during similar like time frames and saying like whoa that tour came through there too and i know that and like it's just all connected but i think that's like very for some reason important so um yeah, Ali did some good work. That's awesome. Is uh is that available online right now or is it still If it's not available then it's definitely available on like um the Wayback machine. Do you know that? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Dude, I spent a bunch of time like trolling SDL Punk 
uh, through the way back machine. Really? I took so many screenshots of stuff. Wait, did you say on SDL Punk? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great way to look to look back there. Yeah, and that's yeah. another thing. Like all that stuff existed only there. Yeah. And I I've, I've been wanting someone for a while to like do a good history of that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. there's just so many ways to tell that story too. Yeah, no, I think so. I think I everyone think it's, would go back to that shit. Right. I agree. And it's um yeah, I mean for those who don't know, it was like the original network social network site mm-hmm specific to st louis and specific to like music in st louis which is awesome and i and i will say that it wasn't just meeting people at shows and at the y's and stuff like that but like that stl punk totally facilitated reaching out to people and meeting people and booking shows and learning about shows and learning about music that's like such a huge part of at least the early 2000s like st louis scene so it's pretty significant yeah what a beautiful thing it was (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yeah, there is some cringy <laughs> elements to it too, because sure. you know people's mm-hmm. lyrics uh, and song <laughs> quotes, and people wearing their hearts on their digital sleeves for sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I'm guilty. So of course, um, as am I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those little icons that you got to choose from to describe yourself were such a oh, like yeah. a niche, like cute, specific thing that was. Uh, just, oh like, yeah. Was, I love that shit. Like I just it's, looking back at, it, I was like, wow, it's yeah. They're like original emojis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. Like, I think right. I had like a knife, and then a straight edge, and then a teardrop or something like that. <laughs> nice. the, the knife means you're a street ruffian. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of interpreted it as like internal violent turmoil, you know, as as, as, yeah. as a seventeen year old, you know? soul ruffian. Speaking of my war, um, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Couple more questions. Best show you've ever seen. There are too many. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being real, like during the height of my, you know, late teens to mid 20s, I was going to shows maybe like at least three times a week. Yeah. Yeah. And like for years. So yeah, that yeah. that adds up. I'm not Beetle Bob, but like <laughs> I went to a, my fair share of shows. It's got to be. I mean, anytime I saw Ghost Ice, for sure, um, there was a show, I mean, this band Sword Heaven from Columbus, Ohio Uh was, I mean, they were incredible then. And I got to see them at least four or five times and like having traveled in my later years and like reminiscing about noise, like with other people all across the country everyone is like sword heaven is the best live band i've ever seen yeah and um the the first time i i saw them i was either 18 or 19 i was going to a show downtown at a gallery i think it was called like 1608 locust or something Mm -hmm. and i just knew that like rick wilson was involved with booking it was that person one no, no, person once. Um, were you at person one? I sure as fuck was. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, yes, I have a VHS of person one. Oh, hell person yeah, one man. was amazing. That was like the Crow T. Brooks Gallery downtown. And I think it was like an acting troops project where they got six or seven bands to like play music while they acted out a scene. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, <laughs> you know, like it was 
you know, the conformists. Scarecrow. I think it was like Grandpa's Ghost, Scarecrow, uh-huh. maybe there's a killer among us. Like yeah. all these all those bands of a certain time. And yeah, it was that was amazing. But um Rick Wilson had booked it and I just knew that like he was playing in his group Lone Tree. Mm. I heard the name Sword Heaven and this group Sixteen Bitch Pileup, um, these two noise acts from Columbus. And um, I went there and I'm pretty sure I ate a pot brownie and drove my dad's car (laughs) and was just like, I don't know what's going to happen. This caveman starts playing drums and it was like the best thing I've ever seen. I back then I was kind of a more timid person or had more of a timid personality, but like when something kind of hits like that and you can't help yourself but like move at a show yeah um like that's that's what happened for me and uh, you know everything goes out the window so yeah that's some good (laughs) shit how about one of the weirdest or worst shows it's gonna be at lemp um (laughs) i'm trying to think oh i know there's two and they're both pretty good (laughs) cool for being terrible like the worst shows yeah Um, in the summer of 2004 I had gone to Columbia, Missouri with some friends to see Sonic Youth and Hair Police and Wolf Eyes were opening. And all three of those bands were super important to me um, at the time. And I, you know, a lot of the Sonic Youth fans did not know, like, these two noise acts were opening up, essentially. But there was this huge dude that was, like, rushing up on these Sonic Youth fans who were, like, sitting through... These two noise acts, you know, regardless, waiting to be up front for Sonic Youth. Yeah. So I'm moshing and this guy is like six foot five and he's huge. And like he's kind of getting into it and we're throwing each other around in like a real fun camaraderie kind of way. And fast forward to Noise Fest. 2004 this dude is playing at lemp and he's like from kansas city he plays under the name alucard which is dracula spelled backwards and is just like super super aggro and in my head i'm thinking oh wait this guy's like cool like i saw him at the sonic youth show he's just like really into noise or whatever but like he's playing this really awful feedback like power electronics but like really shitty but it's like getting in people's faces and not in the fun way and i just remember my friend alice and I think my friend Cassandra, who are both a bit older than I am, they were just kind of like poking fun at him. Like, look at this stupid jock, like noise dude, just like punishing the audience. And he started getting like pretty physical with them. And I was like, if this dude does something again, like I'm somebody's got to do something. And he I remember my friend Alice starts making a face like sticking out her tongue or something like to this guy. And he just puts his whole hand over her face and pushes her and like i just snap and just jump on this six foot five dude i'm a scrawny like 19 year old and he just punches me in the side with a microphone and whips me around and my foot kicks out the um the mic from the amp and the room is silent and like his set is over Mm -hmm. and jeremy and mark both rush over and they're like this needs to stop and like dudes yelling like terrible misogynistic like obscenities and and jeremy's just like what the fuck do you think we have security here like he's and he was like they were messing with my gear (laughs) and that just like totally killed the mood at noise fest but then like you know a couple 
you know, 15 minutes later, somebody kind of brought it back together. That was probably one of the worst shows I've been to. <laughs> yeah. Or at least one of the worst sets. Can I drop another quick one? Absolutely. In 2005, I had booked Ariel Pink at the Lampard Center. And, like, this was before Ariel Pink, like, blew up super huge yeah but he was he had been like known for opening for animal collective or something so yeah. people were like okay they played limp and i'm pretty sure he smoked weed with someone out front <laughs> and someone said it was like pcp but like ariel pink just was losing it on you know the limp floor pacing back and forth and you know i had heard stories like oh he kind of does this but like it looked like the band was breaking up on stage and um if you know like john mouse john mouse was playing Mm. bass for ariel pink at the time and i just remember him pulling the strings off of the bass while they're playing songs just like ripping them off of the bass ariel pink's like losing it and mark is looking at me like what the fuck did you book (laughs) at limp (laughs) (laughs) and basically was like you need to pull the plug and i was just like what (laughs) are you serious so ariel pink is just kind of pacing back and forth half singing and like i was so excited to see him play and this is what it was and everyone's bumming out and so i had to like incrementally lower the volume until i turned off the pa (laughs) and he was just pissed and everyone was bummed and like that was probably one of the worst shows i've been to (laughs) i mean it was great but also sucked yeah that's a good answer (laughs) the terrible shows they always make good stories later you know but they're really hard to endure i shouldn't say they always i mean make good stories (laughs) well yeah i'm lucky to live through some of them (laughs) josh it's funny that uh you said they took place at Lemp because I think both of the worst shows that I saw were at Lemp. One of them was at Noise Fest, and it was this dude, oh new Pledge Master. Were you there for that? Oh, yeah. Pledge In his underwear? Oh, he got <laughs> yeah. totally naked. He got and totally like, naked. He was like, he's so wasted that he, <laughs> I think he thought that like everyone was going to be so happy that he got naked. And then he got naked, and the crowd was just like, what the fuck? And, uh, right, everyone just was that, just like, that kind of bumming. <laughs> yeah. That's the funny thing about those lights, is that sometimes they make for, like, great... I mean, like, the, the lights at Lemp were just always so bright yeah. that sometimes they mm-hmm. made it amazing. But if something like that happened, it's like, oh, let's highlight this super awkward... <laughs> really like it's not working (laughs) yeah 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 there was some post-hardcore show in like 2007 or 8 that i was at and there were like maybe four or five people in the audience and the band was again pretty wasted and then like in between songs the guitarist is like get naked and then he just like gets completely naked and then the rest of the band doesn't and they're just like what the (laughs) fuck dude and and like the four people in the audience are just like, oh god! And it's like two songs in, and uh, so he, yeah. but he was just like too stubborn to put his clothes back on. So for like uh, another fifteen minutes, they're just playing this kind of generic post-hardcore <laughs> with a naked, smelly, uh, on permatur guitarist. It was, uh, it was pretty <laughs> oh, bad. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Uh, yeah. yeah that is funny just by virtue of how many shows i saw at lunch versus everywhere else i think my worst shows have to be there although i've seen some yeah creepy crawl shows yeah definitely <laughs> i think a really really good creepy crawl show is um probably on par with a mediocre lunch show as far as just like how much actual enjoyment i have there right <laughs> well yeah i actually had tried to get in touch with mark 
about a year ago, maybe a little over a year, mm-hmm. and was like, I know you have some like video archive because I've filmed shows at Lemp on the Lemp camcorder. Like, yeah. what's going to happen with those? Like, please let me rescue these tapes yeah and he said he'll get them to me uh someday but i know there's like gold on those tapes somewhere Mm -hmm. yeah so like the brune brune house alone and like i mean just that yeah everything pretty wild so yeah yeah well that was fun yeah well cool josh any other juicy stories you want to share (laughs) there are too many i guess i could leave with like a final word St. Louis is like, living here is a blessing and a curse, as I'm sure you can relate. But like so many special things happen here and kind of exist. And if the stories aren't told, they'll disappear. And I think that's like why it's important to archive and document. Yeah, I'm just hoping that by putting out, you know, what I have, other people will say, you know, maybe I should put out all my old photos. Mm -hmm. uh, And like, because there's just so much stuff even if it's like one roll of film from a show that they went to in 2006, like mm-hmm. no one's seen it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's important. I'm doing my own personal archive and I don't know if it's going to exist as like a STL noise Instagram or something, but yeah. like I want to figure out a way to like funnel people's like ephemera. If it's photos or zines or um, flyers or video shitty cell phone videos like whatever Mm -hmm. but like a central place to kind of um, present it to people interested in that kind of stuff and mine will be specific to yeah mostly noise music uh in st louis yeah so um yeah i guess that's kind of like an open call if you have anything like that and um i do know my friend luke is has kind of like a punk flyer archives so just trying to figure out a way to preserve the history and tell it at least to the people that were there because i'm sure they they want to see it too so yeah luke michalski is that you're talking about yeah i think and uh, um so you're you want to have like a submissions option for your archive thing so that people can like contribute their own stuff because it doesn't exist right now (laughs) gotcha yeah no we're still a ways away from releasing anything i think but yeah right sick yeah that's really cool man that's really cool yeah well um yeah thank you so much it's been really fun to like catch up with you both So that was our chat with Josh Levi. I want to thank Josh for taking the time to talk about all things St. Louis and experimental music, and for letting us use some of his Radiator Grays music on this show. You have been listening to Grand the Arch, Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene, hosted by Caleb Drew and Jim Fitzpatrick. This episode has been mixed by me, Caleb Drew. The Grand the Arch logo was designed by Julia Hahn. To check out more episodes, go to anchor.fm slash grandthearch. If you dig this podcast, please rate and review. If you have questions or comments, we can be reached at grindthearch at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.